Thank you. It is a privilege to, uh, to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, your pastor, Mark, has been a great encouragement to me. I've appreciated the times together, and so I'm very honored that he uh, asked me to, um, to share with you this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that, that you are stronger, that you have a complete victory. I thank you that we can celebrate that together, and I thank you for this congregation, which is a part of your greater church, gathers together to honor your name and to hear from you. Father, I pray that you'd bless your word this morning, that you would be heard, that you would speak to us. Jude, bless your word for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. It is um, a great thing that our God is stronger. Our, our God has won a complete victory. He is the, the beginning and the end. He is above all. And yet, I don't know if you, you ever puzzle about this the way I do. Why isn't that more obvious? <laughs> I mean, he's the God overall. He's the creator. He is holy. He is just And yet we look at the world and so often, frankly, he seems a little bit irrelevant. Maybe it's just me. I I don't know. So we're a country where lots of people have exposure to Christianity, right? So when they do surveys and they say, how many of you go to church? Um, Well over 50% of the country says they go to church. Then they say, when did you last go? And the number drops a little bit. So the percentage of people who actually regularly go to church in the United States, by some estimates, is in the mid-20 percents, right? And we're a country that has tremendous exposure to Christianity and a tremendous heritage of it, and yet in our country, it seems that for many people, Christianity is not on the radar screen. It's kind of, you know, it's not central to them. And we know that, that we have a lot more exposure and activity in Christianity than many countries in the world, and I try to figure out, if God is so great... Why doesn't it look like it? <laughs> right? Why do I look around and I say, why isn't he more obvious? Does he care? To explore that question this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah. And if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2. If you grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, I believe it's on page 488. Uh, we're going to look at, at Isaiah. And a key thing about Isaiah, he wrote and, and taught in the 8th century before Christ, so many, many years ago, you know that the kingdom of Israel, when it was originally formed about 1,000 years before Christ, it was, it was a united kingdom that for 120 years was, was pretty, pretty prominent. Uh, they were strong as a country. And then the country split. You've got this northern part called Israel, the bigger part. The smaller part is Judah down in the south. The northern part very quickly strayed away. And uh, they just had awful kings who actively said, you know, folks, let's go worship other gods. And it was just a mess until eventually, around 722 BC, it was destroyed. And it was over. That country would never gather together again. Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom, in Judah, right about the time when this happened. And so they said, you know what? We were supposed to be God's country. We were supposed to represent God on the earth, to proclaim his glory to, to all the nations. And here we split. The bigger part has gone so bad that, that they're lost. And then here we are in the southern part. And so Isaiah speaks to these people. And I think a thing that was going through Isaiah's mind, through the people's mind, is this idea that sometimes God's people seem strangely irrelevant in the world. These were supposed to be the people who would proclaim God's glory, and yet they're falling off the map. And Isaiah says, pretty soon you're not even going to be a country here anymore. And and frankly, when God chose these people, 
it seems that he didn't choose the people who were likely to be prominent, right? He found a man and his family who was kind of wandering and they didn't have a land of their own. But he said, that's all right. I'm gonna pick you as a people. But they weren't a prominent people. They weren't a significant people. And then God said, okay, here's where my name's gonna be known. And he said, here's where I want you to be and where I want the temple to be. And you know, Jerusalem is very prominent. Uh, it's a significant thing in world affairs, right? And so much so that President Obama has said, here's a plan for how we can bring peace in the Middle East. But you know, there's one problem, at least one, that we'd have no idea how to solve, and that's Jerusalem. So we're not even gonna think about that yet. We don't know what to do about this. But there's nothing natural about Jerusalem that makes it real prominent. I had the chance to go there um, a couple of years ago. Uh, I took a course and this is kind of, I'm standing here, sorry, it's a little bit small, I'll zoom in in a second. Um, I'm standing on the Mount of Olives, looking west, across Jerusalem. And I don't know if you can see it, probably not this green area in here. Well, let me zoom in on it. This is the uh, Temple Mount. And you see that gold dome? Right over here, that gold dome is the Al-Aqsa Mosque that sits on the Temple Mount. But I want you to notice something. I'm looking right over the top of the place that God says, this is where my name will be known. In terms of hills, God didn't pick a very big one. Mount of Olives is taller. And the mountains on the other side are taller. And in between is this small hill, right? That when you go up the Mount of Olives, you look right across the top of it. Uh, doing the same thing if, if we look down from, uh, from, now I'm in the south looking north. And again, you look across this and Jerusalem is just lost in the midst of it. If I zoom in, um, you can just barely see here's a gold dome. It's kind of lost in the midst. So when you're East of Jerusalem looking west, you look right over the top of where the, the temple was. If you're south of Jerusalem looking north, you look right over the top of where it was. If you weren't within a couple of miles, miles of the place where God said, this is where my name's gonna be known, you wouldn't even know it was there, right? Surprising, God picks a funny place. It, it's not just that, that if you look at a map of the ancient Middle East, so here's the Mediterranean Sea and, and Egypt down there to the left and up over to the right, you get to Babylon. In one way, it's a prominent place that these highways go right through, well, right next to Israel. But I'm sure you can't see it, I can tell you. No highways go through Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem isn't on a thoroughfare. In fact, when the people of Israel were threatened, what would they do? They'd run up the hills and nobody's gonna bother them in the hills. Who wants to go in the hills, <laughs> right? It's an out-of-the-way place. It's not a significant place. God, for some reason, said, here's where my name's gonna be known on a hill that you can't see unless you're close by, in a place that most people don't travel through. I think, God, pick something that's strangely irrelevant. Well, it's worse than that. Let's look at Isaiah, chapter two, verse one. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah says, I'm speaking about these people. The first thing is fascinating is, what does it say? This is the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, I usually think of hearing or reading words, not seeing words. He saw this word, eh, interesting expression. Another thing that's interesting, just look back to Isaiah chapter one, verse one. Almost identical words. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So at least here he's seeing a vision. <laughs> For some reason, chapter two, verse one, he sees a word. but. People look at this and say, in one way, maybe these two statements tie chapter one together, but I think there's a significant way in which chapter two, verse one says, 
God's putting a very strong stamp of approval saying, here's a vision that my people need to see. Now, the first five chapters of Isaiah, uh, it's really up and down, or rather down and up. First chapter is very negative. Second chapter is very positive. Third chapter is very negative. Fourth chapter is quite positive. Fifth chapter is rather negative again. It's, he's really torn about his people. Since you're in chapter one, look at verse two. Listen to how God describes his people. So chapter one, verse two. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, the place where it gets food, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Here's how God describes his people. They're dumber than oxen and donkeys, <laughs> right? Oxen and donkeys know where to find the food. We've got a golden retriever. He knows where to find the food, right? He is dedicated to the footsteps that are tied to food coming. God says, my people are, are dumber than that. They don't get it. They keep wandering off to other things. So not only did God pick a people that's not very prominent in a place that's not very prominent, they were a people who wandered away from him. So he compares them negatively with oxen and donkeys. So chapter three is kind of a negative one too. Let me just read one verse. Chapter three, verse six. Listen to the people's description of what kind of leader they expect to have for what kind of place they are. Chapter three, verse six says, for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. Not a very optimistic view of themselves. They say, well, we're gonna find anybody who's got a cloak and say, boy, you could be our leader. It's just a bunch of ruins that you're gonna lead. There was a very strong sense for these people that they were rather irrelevant in the world. They, they, weren't, they weren't something that was going to make a big difference, and yet God had called them. And, and it seems that this reality is very true, that God's people often seem irrelevant in the world. So think of Jesus dying on the cross. Here it is, God who created the world came and he died, and most people didn't care. In fact, a whole lot of people were rejoicing. Great, we got rid of the guy. We don't know how many people actually mourned his death, but it seems that it's on the order of 100 people. This is God. And most people don't care. Strangely irrelevant. And frankly, I struggle with that in our world today. I was just out um, in Seattle. I was visiting a really good, prominent church that connects itself with or you know, seeks to reach out to the University of Washington. A block away from campus, thousands of people come. So I went to the students, in, in, you know, the Christian students in this church, and I said, how many Christian faculty do you know at the University of Washington? Um, none. <laughs> I couldn't name anybody. Eventually I found somebody who said, oh yeah, I think I know of one, and he really struggles. It's like, really? God seems strangely irrelevant in the world to think that here's a prominent school that's educating you know, 40,000 plus students, and it's hard to find a Christian who stands up in that environment and says, I honor God. God's people often seem strangely irrelevant in our world. And I puzzle over this. I say, why is that? But it's also very personal. You see, sometimes I feel like my own Christian life is rather irrelevant too. And what I mean by that is this. 
uh, somebody that I talk with, I, I work on campus, um, and somebody that I talk with a fair amount, you know, a normal part of the conversation turns to how other people aren't good people. <laughs> you know, how they haven't done the right thing. And, and one of the things that I say to them is, you know, I don't know what to tell you except that love is patient and love is kind. But frankly, kindness seems oddly irrelevant in the world, <laughs> right? I'm kind to people and they seem not to care and they go on. And what, did it, what good did it do to be kind, right? I, I try to reach out to people, try to, to express God's word to them and they say, oh, whatever, and they go on. And I think, you know, what did that do? And, and then... I say, well, in my personal life, I know I need to be looking at God's word. I know, that I, know I need to study it. I need to pray over it. And so I do that. I try, and then I do it, and I'm sorry to say, I can't tell you that all of a sudden that day was a whole lot better day. Say, all these great things happened today because I started by studying God's word. I mean, sometimes I can, but most of the time I can't tell you that. I mean, surprisingly, it seems somewhat irrelevant it's great to hear stories when people can tell you about that. And sometimes I can, but I, I often feel rather down about myself because, wow, other people seem to have all this success when, you know, when they seek to honor God. But very often for me, it just seems like I did it and we go on. I think that's the world into which Isaiah was speaking. And so listen to the vision, to the word that Isaiah saw. This is chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Let's just stop and, and reflect on that for a second. That, uh, first thing that's fascinating is you might have a footnote in your Bible referring to this. If you look at Micah chapter four, you don't have to turn there. And the reason you don't have to turn there is it's exactly the same words. <laughs> Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 are the identical words to Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Surprising thing. And so people try to puzzle who, you know, who plagiarized whom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't think we really know. People have different arguments, but I think it's clear that God can inspire both specific words and the use of other people's words. He can inspire either way. So that's, it's not a problem to me. This is the vision that Isaiah saw and reported, and, and we have there the record as well. He says, it's going to come, up, come to pass in the latter days. Isaiah said, I've got this word, and it's about the future, about what's going to happen. Now, sometimes people read this as a, a rather technical sense of the latter days. They speak about uh, the last days. Perhaps I think the NIV uses that term, the last days. And it could be something specific like that. I, I tend to read it just as, this is down the road, folks. I want you to see where we're going. And, and I don't think it was like instantly, all of a sudden this happens and it hadn't happened before. I think you see evidence of this over time. But Isaiah says, I want you to look forward to something that's coming that actually is very different than what you see today. This is what he says is going to happen. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. 
It's going to be lifted up above the hills. Remember that picture of looking across the temple? And you look right over the top of it. You've got to be within miles of it just to see it. He says, a day is coming when that mountain is going to tower over everything. Now, I don't think he's worried so much geographically saying, you know, someday this mountain's going to be taller than Mount Everest. And, you know. He's saying that in a world of pluralism, there will be a day when the worship of God is so obviously central, everybody will recognize it. There will be a day when this mountain really is the one that rises above all others, even though today it looks like it's just in the mix. Isaiah says, I can see this coming. Can you see it? He says, it's going to be established. It shall be lifted up above the hills. You know, the, um, the Septuagint, it's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, the word here for shall be lifted up is the same word that Jesus used in John when he said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Fascinating. The mountain of God being raised up, ironically, in Jesus' case, he was raised up to die, but then to live again. And in doing that, he says, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Isaiah said, folks, it looks like the mountain of God doesn't matter today. But let me tell you, I can see a day in the future when it's going to be the most prominent mountain. And what will happen? It says in the last part of verse 2, he says, the nations will flow to it, many peoples shall come. See, in the past, the only time people come to Jerusalem is for one thing, to conquer and loot it. I mean, there are a few times when the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, and, but for the most part, people don't come here except to conquer it. A day is coming when the nations are going to flow to this, to this land that they're going to come to find the God of this land. They will flow to it. Many people shall come from all over, and here's what they're going to say. They say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. They say, let's go up to this mountain. Gather together, everybody, from, from wherever we are in the world, let's go there. And, and they say, let's go up. And, and you know, in Israel, it doesn't matter where you are, how high, north, south, east, west, whenever you go to the temple, you go up. Right? Because it is the most prominent place. So you're always going up. It's the word of pilgrimage, the word of going to the place to worship God. And the nations are saying, hey, we're going to join in that pilgrimage. We're also going to go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And, and I think the NIV uses the word temple here, and it can be, but it is the place of the worship of God. It's the God of Jacob. Um, so Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And do you know that Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel? His old name was not a very nice one. Deceiver, schemer, this is a guy whose very name says, I do whatever it takes to get what I want. And we're given plenty of record that he did that. But God said, you know, I'm not going to call you that anymore. I'm going to give you a new name, Israel, the man who wrestles with God and overcomes. Not the only one to have his name changed. Another one was Abraham. He went from Abram to Abraham. But you know what happened when Abram had his name changed to Abraham? We dropped the old name. We don't say Abram anymore. Right? That, that whenever the Bible refers to him after that point, they always talk about Abraham. Not so with Jacob. With Jacob, even after his name is changed, the Bible repeatedly goes back and calls him Jacob sometimes and Israel other times. I think that when the Bible uses the name Jacob, it's a reminder of his past. It's a reminder that this isn't a great guy. 
And I didn't choose him because he was a shining example of what I want to be. I chose him when he was a schemer, a deceiver, somebody who manipulated the world to get what he wanted. God changed his name, but when his old name is used, I think it's a reminder that he's not that great a guy. God didn't choose him because he was that great a guy. And so when it says, the people say, let's go to the house of the God of Jacob, they're not saying, let's go to the house of the God of the great people. They're saying, let's go to the house of the great God of the pretty pathetic people. Right? God's prominence isn't his people. His prominence is him. And they say, we're going to that God. See, it's fascinating here that we have both the particularity of the gospel and the universality of it. It's particular in the sense that they say, we're going to the God of Jacob. There are other stories in the Bible in a group that we're looking through the book of Jonah. And you know, the book of Jonah, there's this great storm and all the sailors say, hey, we better pray because we're going to die. And when they say, we're going to pray, they say, everybody pray to whatever God you know of because we hope to cover it. You know, if we all pray about all the gods that we know of, hopefully somebody will get the right God and we'll be fine. It's not what they say here. They say, we're going to the God of Jacob, right? They're going to the one source. They recognize one source. It's, it's very particular. The nations say, we're going to the God that's revealed himself to Jacob, that schemer. And yet it's universal in the sense that many peoples are coming. It's not just for that people. Many peoples are being drawn to seek after this one God. And they tell their purpose. They say, we're going to come because we've got a purpose. We have a goal. They say that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. They said, we want to come and be taught the ways of God. Now, that's surprising in uh, the Old Testament world. Because normally what you do with a God is you just find out what you have to do to buy off that God. Right? You say, this God demands sacrifices, so tell us the right sacrifice to give. We'll give it, and then we'll go on with our lives. We're not going to change our lives to do what the God wants, except give him what he wants. Right? That's a normal thing to do. What do we have to sacrifice to get to this God? This wasn't a superficial conversion. These people are saying, we want to know God's ways because we want to walk in them. Right? This is a profound conversion. They say, we're going to come to the house of the God of Jacob so that he can teach us his ways so that we can do them. Amazing conversion of these people. Why does it happen? Isaiah goes on, he says in the middle of verse 3, for out of Zion will go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Out of Zion. Zion is, um, refers to the place of the temple. I think it also has interesting connotations that when Zion is used, it refers to the God-ordained worship of him. God said, here's how you're to worship me. And Zion is the place to do it. And so it again is this idea that, that out of Zion, out of this place where God is worshipped by his people, out of this place, his law is going to go. And that word law is fascinating. Um, it's literally the word Torah that we use to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. It literally refers to that particularly for us. But I think for Isaiah, there was something else behind it. You see, the word Torah comes from the basic word Yarah, which means to teach. And that's the word that the people used in the middle of verse 3. We're going to the house of God so that he might teach us. And Isaiah says, the reason they're coming to be taught by God is because his instruction, his teaching is flowing from this place. 
Right? It's not just a list of here's what you've got to do or don't do. This is the self-revelation of God that just flows from his people in this place. The word of the Lord is going out from Jerusalem, he says. That's why people hear it and say, we've got to come to the source. We've got to hear it. And then he says that God will judge. He will judge the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And, and this is what a king would do. Uh, you remember the story of Solomon? Uh, when he became king, he, he, his desire to have wisdom. And so these two women, who both had infant sons, were living together. One of the infant sons dies. And so one of the women, the, women, woman, the mother of the dead son, gets up, swaps the babies, and then they have this dispute about which one has the live son, which is the dead son, and there are no witnesses except the two of them. No DNA testing to figure out, you know, what, you just have to go with it. And so Solomon is asked to decide, right? What do you do? And he says, cut the baby in half, knowing all along that the true mother would never allow that. She would rather give up her son than see him harmed. And he shows great wisdom and brings peace to the situation. Isaiah says, that's God. That's the way God's going to deal with the nations. He's going to settle disputes. He's going to bring justice and peace, and the people are going to follow it. And what happens when the people follow it? He says, they don't need weapons anymore. You know, it's time to, to uh, you know, take the old weapons and turn them into useful things now, because they're not useful as weapons anymore. What can we do to do productive stuff with it? Joel actually uses the same expression the other way. In a fascinating way, he says, boy, you know, if, if you've got a pruning hook, you better turn it into a spear, right? You're gonna, so it's not, the Bible's not presenting this idea that it's just all gonna be easy. I think Isaiah can see a long ways into the future and say there's gonna be a time when weapons of war are not needed anymore. And in fact, he says, there won't be any more battles and you don't have to learn war anymore. We live in a world where that's not true. A significant part of our budget says we have to defend ourselves. Isaiah said, there's going to be a time when God settles disputes, right? There's a good peacemaker. (laughs) There's a wise person who says, I know which way to solve this. He's going to do it, and he says, there will be peace. What does Isaiah see in this? Isaiah says, I can see a future that's very different than our present. Right now, it looks like God's people are irrelevant. But he says, there is a day coming when the nations will come to God's people to hear and obey the truth. He says, there's a day when that's going to happen. When the nations are going to flow in, today we seem irrelevant. Today we seem out of the picture. But he says, there's a day when they're just going to come and say, we need to know this. They're going to come, he says. They're going to say, we need to be taught so that we can obey. It's an amazing thing that's, that's coming. Isaiah says, that's what I can see down the road. What are the implications? Look at verse 5. O house of Jacob... Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah now turns to his fellow uh, Jews. And he says, O house of Jacob, remember, Jacob. (laughs) O fallen people who are dumber than oxen, who don't know where their real source of life is. We've wandered, we've strayed, we're not a significant people. Yet he says, come and let us walk in the light of God. I'm fascinated by this. What did the nations say? They said to each other, come. And then they said, let's go up to the temple, let's be taught, and let us walk in the truth. So what does Isaiah say when he turns to his people? Come, 
let us walk in the truth. Isaiah says, hey, if this is the way the nations are going to respond to our God, let's join in with it, right? Let's also boldly come and hear and obey. And this wasn't the world he was living in. The people thought that worship of God had become rather irrelevant, such that there were times they even lost their copies of the law. They lost, they're the source of God's instruction to the world and they lost it, right? He says, if the nations are going to do this, he said, let's do that as well. It's a call to them. And he also says, let us boldly proclaim. Why? Because the word of God is going out from his people to the whole world. He says, that's what's going on. And you can see this happening in the early church. You can see it happen uh, you know, in Acts 2. You know the story that it's 120 frightened people, and yet God does an amazing work And in Acts, it goes out of its way to say the whole known world has come to hear the instruction of God. And they hear it and they're cut to the heart and they say, what do we have to do? They long to obey, right? We see this happen. And and this has been happening in the history of the church of of the missions movement. And you have a meeting this coming Tuesday night about exploring how you can be involved in mission of the message of God going out to the world. And it's not just going from the West, Right? In fact, the, the greatest missionary movement right now is from other parts of the world to other parts of the world. It's an amazing thing that's happening. So one of my favorite movies um, is Chariots of Fire, an old movie, but I just want to tell you about one scene in it that's got my attention. Uh, so the basic idea of the movie is that there are uh, two athletes, two runners, training for the 1924 Olympics. One of those two runners, his name is Harold Abrahams, and he thinks he can be the fastest human alive. But to do that, he says, I've got to get the best coach alive. So he finds the best coach and goes to the coach and says, I want you to be my coach. And the coach sits back and says, I'm the best coach in the world. You don't come asking me that question. I go around finding the person that I think is the best athlete in the world, and I choose who my coach. Well, Harold Abrahams is not to be put off. He says, I believe I'm that man. I believe that I can be the fastest one in the world if you'll train me. And then here's what got my attention. The coach then says, if I can see that gold medal hanging out there in our reach such that through you I can have access to a gold medal, he says, if I can see that, you will be sorry that I became your coach. I'm going to push you so hard because we're going to do this. We're going to win that gold. He says, if I can taste it, if I can see that treasure out there, I'm going to do everything in my power to get there. And that's what Isaiah has done for us. Isaiah says, folks, can you see that treasure out there? Can you see the day when the nations will come flowing to you saying, we need to know God's ways because we want to obey it, we want to follow. Can you see it? And if you can see it, then let's boldly walk in it. Today, let's walk in this future light, this future glory. And yet... Life still is challenging. I don't know what your situation might be. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's trying to overcome a, a, a sin, a, a temptation in your life. You say, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing it. And yet, there it is over and over again. Maybe it's a relationship where you really try to invest, you try to serve, you try to give, and yet you feel like you get trounced over and over again. <laughs> See, that, that vision might be way out there, but that's not the world I live in. It's not where I am. I, don't, I, it's, I lose sight of it. It's too far away. 
So these are um, challenging days uh, to be a farmer in, um, in Michigan because you have to find this narrow window of time when you can actually plant. Challenging thing about being a farmer. What you do is you take all your money, you buy a whole bunch of these little grains, and you put them in the ground and cover them up, and you sit and wait and hope, right? All your investment you've put in the ground, and now you have no power to do anything about it except wait. Now, the good news in general is that in a couple of months, you get a great harvest, right? And if you happen to be growing corn this year, that's really good news because the price is good, and and if you manage to get a crop, you'll make money on it. Here's what I've discovered. In my Christian life, I'm the farmer, and this is what I usually see, right? Every time I'm kind to somebody, every time I try to be patient, every time I try to persevere, every time I try to rejoice when the situation doesn't look very joyful, I try, and then I look for plants. (laughs) And I look out there, and it's just dirt. And what I tried to do is buried under that dirt. I can't even see what I did. And I think, what am I supposed to do about this? I get discouraged. And yet, Isaiah says, God can see down the road the great harvest that is going to come. Now, I think in my life, my life is one growing season, right? I'm investing for a long period of time thinking someday I'm going to see the fruit, but it's a long time before I see it. It's wonderful to have glimpses of it along the way, but very often I feel like it's one long journey, and I don't know how far out that is. But here's an image that helps me. Every time that I endeavor to do what's right in boldly obeying God, I'm planting more seed. And in the eyes of faith, I'm trying to learn to see that picture of that seed. That as I plant it, God says, I'm going to make it fruitful someday. You will see it. When Isaiah looked at the people he was talking to, it did not look like a pretty picture. It was nothing but dirt. Well, I think in a bunch of thorns and other things that made it hard to grow. I mean, he looked at it and it wasn't a good picture, but he said, can you see out there? Can you see the future? Because, he says, I see out there a future where the nations are going to come streaming to God's people to say we need to know the word of God, to obey the truth. All kinds of people from all kinds of places. He says, because of that, Will you boldly come? Will you boldly hear and obey and boldly proclaim? Very often I don't see this in life. Very often I just see the dirt. But I want to invite you to see the action you take take, to come, to hear, to obey, to proclaim as planting a seed. And every time you do it, you're planting more seed and someday, by God's grace, it will become an amazing harvest of people who have come to know his way because of your effort to follow after him. It was his invitation to the people of that day. It's the invitation to us today. So I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it is saying, I keep pushing at obedience even when obedience is hard. Even when I keep failing, I keep pushing after it, even though I don't see progress because I'm convinced that there will be a harvest, that God has this picture, this amazing picture he wants me to be a part of. And as you seek to share good news with people around you, Maybe it's somebody else in class. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's a relative. And you say, I want them to know the good news of this great God we have and and, and the gift that he's given us. And yet, I don't know. It doesn't seem to help so much. 
see with the eyes of faith. And so I'm, I'm thrilled about this uh, Saturday night service that you guys have starting in a couple of weeks, June 18th, I believe, uh, of saying, let's draw in people who want to ask questions, who want to hear the truth. You hear that? The nation's coming to hear the truth, to understand it. What a fantastic thing. Well, you have the boldness to initiate the conversation. It says, hey, we got this cool thing happening, coming up at this community of people that I'm a part of. I'd love to have you join me. Right, do you have the boldness to do that? Why? Because it's planting seed. Seed that God makes grow. When Isaiah looked at his world, he saw what his people saw, and it was a discouraging situation. Their faith seemed largely irrelevant. And yet, he said, let me give you a glimpse of the future. A future in which people stream to hear the word of God through his people. Isaiah says, can you see it out there? Can you get a taste of it? And let's live today in the light of that future glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this vision, that, uh, this word that Isaiah saw of a future that seems so different than what I so often see today. Thank you for your amazing plan to use your people, messed up as we so often are, your plan to use your people so that many will come to hear and to obey the truth. Father, I pray for people here today, for each one of us and whatever we face. And I suspect there are all sorts of different things that are discouraging to us where we feel like we keep trying and it doesn't seem to help. We're afraid to try because we're not sure anything good will come of it. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by this vision of an amazing future in which your glory in your people is lifted up, up, up above all other mountains, than a world of pluralism that is recognized as the only source of life and of truth. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness to come to hear, to obey, and to proclaim this great news. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, may the amazing grace of this, our God, be with you and strengthen you as you follow after him and see that amazing vision in the road before us. Go in his grace. Amen.